Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today I'll be discussing Wendy Moore's engrossing book, Wedlock, the true story of the disastrous marriage and remarkable divorce of Mary Eleanor Bowes, Countess of Strathmore. Now, this is the second of Miss Moore's books I've enjoyed because she has a real gift for finding true historical stories that are, indeed, stranger than fiction. Additionally, she also could be compared to an author like Eric Larson of Isaac Storm and Devil in the White City, among others, because she's able to weave her tales so skillfully that you often forget you're reading nonfiction. I don't know about you, but with my ADHD and crazy schedule, I'm all about those things that make it just a little easier to grasp. Know what I mean? So without further ado, let's talk about Mary Eleanor Bowes. Uh, I do want to apologize as well while we're at it. Speaking of ADHD and crazy schedules, I don't know how I lost a day in my calculations, but for some reason, I thought I had a whole another day to publish this podcast. So if you were expecting this on the 11th, my deepest apologies, you're kidding it on the 12th. Anyway, Mary Eleanor was born to Sir George Bowes and his second wife, Mary Gilbert, in February of 1749. Fun fact, she was named after her mother and her father's first wife, Eleanor Verney, who died at the age of 14. As if that's not creepy enough, Eleanor and George had begun a very friendly correspondence when she was only around nine years old. But we're not talking about that marriage today, or even the marriage of Mary Eleanor's parents, or even really her first marriage. We're going to talk about her crazy and devastating second marriage. I just want to give you some flavor to set the scene first. Mary Eleanor's father died when she was only 11 years old and left her one of the richest people in England, with some estimates of her fortune being around 150 million pounds in today's currency, or about 200 million dollars. Wowza. Now, because she was an only child and a girl, Bose made some stipulations in his will designed to protect the family name and keep it going. Any man that married Mary Eleanor had to adopt the surname Bowes, which for her first husband, John Lyon, meant an act of parliament since he was a peer of the realm. Here's what you need to know about that first marriage. Mary Eleanor chose him, against her mother's advice, at the ripe and wise old age of 18. Any hopes she might have had about it being a love match where she could truly be herself and pursue her literary and botanical passions, something she had come to expect based on the lavish education provided by her parents, were soon quashed by her staid older husband. From the book. Soon after her marriage, the scholarly Earl forbade her from attending Elizabeth Montague's blue stocking gatherings, making her break with her friend in what Mary described as a very rude and abrupt manner. Although Mrs. Montague's company was plainly good enough for Samuel Johnson, Horace Walpole, and David Garrick, the Earl branded her a wild, light, silly woman of bad character who was not fit for his wife's acquaintance. 
Sadly, against my inclination, she said, I was forced to comply and give her up with many others. Over the course of nine years of marriage, they had five children, three boys and two girls, and almost nothing in common. From the book. Reading her late husband's last letter, dressed in her widow's morning gown, Mary knew that the telltale signs of her latest imprudency would soon be all too apparent. Lord Strathmore's savage words written on his deathbed beneath the rocking deck were coolly calculated to prompt remorse in all but the most unfeeling of widows. As this is not intended for your perusal till I am dead, he began, I hope you will pay a little more attention to it than you ever did to anything I said to you while alive. In the stern tone of a disappointed father rather than the emotional farewell of a husband and lover, the Earl declared, I freely forgive you all your liberties and follies, however fatal they have been to me, as being thoroughly persuaded they were not the produce of your own mind, but the suggestions of some vile, interested monster. Whether the Earl simply had in mind one of Mary's fawning friends, or actually suspected her liaison with Grey, he did not identify this monster. Continuing in the same cold, paternalistic manner, he requested Mary to lay aside her prejudices against his family, convinced that these were entirely without foundation. Urging her to treat their five children fairly, he warned her, warned her to avoid indulging in malicious gossip and, perhaps suffered, having suffered himself at the expense of her sharp wit, not to be tempted to say an ill-natured thing for the sake of sporting a bon mot. Even as he dismissed the futility of her literary ambitions, the Earl insisted that no one ever studied with more attention to promote the happiness of an other than I have constantly done to promote yours. Yet his concluding advice, to safeguard her fortune by vesting control of her estate in the hands of a trustworthy agent, was eminently sensible and well-meaning if chiefly prompted by concern for the future welfare of his young heir, rather than for his wife. The Earl's parting words, A dead man can have no interest to mislead. A living man may, would surely haunt his widow in years to come. Now, towards the end of her marriage to Strathmore, Mary Eleanor had already engaged in an affair with George Grey, and had had to put an end to several unplanned pregnancies. In fact, it was her expectation of another child not long after the death of Strathmore that put plans into motion for her second marriage. Her previously successful methods of terminating her pregnancies were not working this time around, and so she and Gray made plans to marry and even established a pre-contract in, in front of witnesses. Additionally, Mary Eleanor arranged for a deed to be drawn up, much like a prenuptial agreement, that would protect her property in the form of an outside trust for her and her children once she married, since at the time, women did not hold the same property rights enjoyed today, and upon marriage, any property ownership was automatically transferred over to the husband. We can safely assume that Gray knew of this, although the consent of her future spouse was not necessary for the deed to be legally binding. What happens next may sound like something straight out of a picaresque novel. Actually, 
If you've read The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Makepeace Thackeray, it's almost exactly what it sounds like because the author based his rogue on the man who would steal Mary Eleanor right out from under George Gray's nose. Andrew Robinson Stoney was already a widower of one rich heiress by the time he ingratiated himself into Mary Eleanor's social circle in the late 1770s. He hailed from a famed military family in Ireland and claimed to be much more than he was. His false claims of being a captain when he was, in fact, a mere lieutenant were to be the least of Mary Eleanor's worries. As Stoney made his way into Mary Eleanor's life, he had quite a few tricks up his sleeve to guarantee his success. There are a few particularly crazy examples of the stuff he was pulling. The first was an orchestrated visit to the fortune teller, done in such a way that Mary Eleanor could have no idea that the entire excursion, when the group, which Stoney wasn't even a part of that day, decided to visit a newly arrived fortune teller, and the woman ended up singing the praises of a new military man who had come into Mary Eleanor's life. At this point, she was engaged already to George Gray, but the woman informed her that he was not the man for her, and she should be on the lookout for a tall, handsome man that fit Stoney's description to a T. He next sent her a letter from one of his jilted lovers cleverly urging Mary Eleanor to marry Gray instead of Stoney, because Gray had worked so hard to make peace with Mary Eleanor's in-laws, the Strathmore family. Nothing could have been planned to better set Mary Eleanor against her fiancé, Gray, since she had such a strange relationship with that family and would have seen it as an abuse of trust. Again, this was just a ploy from Stoney. No such jilted lover even existed, although he did have lots of lovers. But let's go a little darker, shall we? Stoney started writing anonymous letters to a local newspaper about the licentious life Mary Eleanor was leading. Then he started writing back to the paper as himself defending her. It escalated to the point where Stoney challenged the editor of the paper to a duel if he refused to stop publishing these scurrilous tales about his lady, which again, let me repeat, Stoney was writing anonymously himself. The duel that inevitably followed would eventually become fodder for the theater in Sheridan's The School for Scandal, which audiences would have recognized as the events that took place in 1777. After fatally wounding Stoney, the editor, a somewhat unscrupulous, it turns out, preacher named Bates, fled the scene of the fight. Stoney was attended by a doctor, and the woman whose honor he was defending, Mary Eleanor, was sent for to see him on his deathbed. When she arrived, Stoney managed to rally himself well enough to tell her of his dying wish, to marry the woman he loved and had given his life for. Keep in mind that Mary Eleanor was already engaged at this time to George Gray, but by all accounts, Stoney looked as if he wasn't long for this world, so she decided to acquiesce, thinking that he'd probably die of his inju injuries within the week. Little did she know, or imagine, that he would miraculously rally as soon as the vows were spoken and her life would take a drastic turn almost immediately. 
Once installed in her home, Stoney began exercising his rights as a, as a husband, controlling every aspect of Mary Eleanor's life down to what she ate and the clothes she wore. He began beating her daily and forced her to sign a document to nullify her earlier deed protecting her inheritance. Fortunately, she had been able to get a copy to a trusted footman who held on to it in secret for years, even after being approached with bribes, threatened, and eventually fired by Stoney. In short, the next eight years of her life were hellish for Mary Eleanor. She was separated from her children, humiliated in front of friends, family, and strangers, and forced to endure a constant stream of abuse and adultery from her profligate husband. Honestly, I lost count while reading this book just how many women he coerced or forced into his bed, and how many illegitimate children were born as a result, but his crimes against Mary Eleanor really stand out. He forced her to write out her crimes and imprudencies, which he would later use against her in a very public divorce battle. He forced her to aid in the abduction and absconding with her youngest daughter from Lord Strathmore to France, where there's even some speculation that he seduced her daughter and definite proof that he won her over to his side against her own mother. That relationship never fully recovered as a result. He also forced her to live in the same household as some of his mistresses, most notably the woman he'd hired as a nurse for their only son, who ended up bearing children to Stoney as well. In short, he was a cad. But it turns out, that's not even the worst of his crimes. From the book. Having twice been threatened with a knife in a matter of months, and knowing that Bose had accumulated a stack of insurance policies on her life, Mary Eleanor now genuinely feared for her own safety. Only her concern for her two youngest children, toddling William and six-year-old Mary, deterred her from fleeing or worse. The only thing that kept me alive was that my younger children's future interests depended on my existence, she would write. If she tried to leave, she knew she would almost certainly never be allowed to see her children again. Equally, she could be forced back to her marital home by law, only to face even worse retribution. Petrified, distraught, and friendless, she saw no prospect of escape. And then, into her life, walked Mary Morgan. Mary Morgan would become Mary Eleanor's saving grace. She, along with three other servants in the house, after eight years of an abusive marriage, managed to help Mary Eleanor escape and sue for divorce, a huge and scary step for any woman in Georgian England. From the book. In In the farewell letter that she left her husband, a copy of which survives today, Mary was able to put into words her true feelings about bows for the first time in eight years of wedlock. I think neither yourself nor the world will be surprised at the step I now take, she began, as it is the only resource left me to secure my own life and the honor of my family, which has long been tarnished by your conduct and the actions you have forced me to. 
insisting in a feeble attempt to delude him that she would already be far away by the time he read her words, Mary said she had long hoped that he would reform his behavior over time, or that the restoration of her older children might provide a check on your vices, follies, and extravagance. But as she had learned to her horror since Anna had come to live with them, not only had Bose's behavior become more openly scandalous and indecent than ever, but he had even encouraged her daughter to treat her with contempt. Having decided that she no longer wished to bring up her five eldest children under the roof of viciousness and ill nature, she was fleeing to save my two youngest from beggary, as well as to preserve her own life. Vowing to claim my dear boy and girl as soon as she could, she looked forward to guiding their future education as her chief delight and amusement. Ending with a flourish, she declared, Farewell. I forgive, but will never see you again. I can add no more as you have long ceased to treat me in any respect as a wife or a friend. Mary's touching faith that the Georgian world would express no surprise at her departure was matched only by her misplaced confidence that her trouble with bows were at an end. Clearly, she had no idea what was in store next. Stony Bows, for he had also had to change his name upon their marriage, enacted a campaign of intimidation against her tenants and friends and herself to such an extent that when she told others of what was happening, thanks to his earlier campaigns to discredit his wife as eccentric, they thought she was imagining it. Unfortunately, her abduction in broad daylight was very real. From the book. Petrified for her safety, but utterly determined never to return to Beau's violent regime, nothing would now induce Mary to bow to his bullying tactics. So as Bose urged the coach onward at reckless speed, stopping only to change horses or snatch refreshments at inns, Mary attempted every possible means of escape. At the first halt to change horses at Barnet, Mary smashed the carriage window with her bare hands and yelled, Murder! For God's sake, help me! But she was immediately gagged by bows and held fast by Lucas. Halting shortly afterward at the Brickwall Turnpike, she begged to be allowed out for a call of nature. Trembling so much that she could hardly hold the chamber pot, she persuaded the tollbooth keepers to fetch her a pen and paper. But having been told by Bose that they were headed for St. Paul's Waldenbury, on the pretext that one of her children was seriously ill, she scribbled a note to Morgan urging her to hurry there. Incredibly, the hastily scrawled note found its way back to London. Even more incredibly, torn and stained with dampness, it still survives. My dear Morgan, she pleaded, let me beg that you and Mr. Lacey will come to me immediately upon the receipt of this to Paul's Walden and bring any other of our friends with you and for heaven's sake don't lose a moment. Farther along the road, when the carriage pulled in that evening at the George Inn, Buckton, in Cambridgeshire, uh, Mary succeeded in snatching a few words alone with a sympathetic serving maid whom she entreated to send a message by express carrier, a messenger on horseback, to Lord Mansfield. Later the maid would testify that Mary seemed in great fear, trouble, and distress, and wept very much and appeared to be very sick and vomited. But reassured by Bose that Mary was merely ill through fasting, 
The maid never sent the message. Continuing up the dangerously rutted northern road, the disheveled party arrived at 1 a.m. at the Bell Inn Stilton. Raising the tavern staff from their beds, Bose dragged Mary into a parlor, held a pistol to her head, and threatened to shoot her unless she signed a paper suspending the divorce. When she adamantly refused, he clenched his fist and punched her in the head. Dragged by his ruffians toward the coach, Mary managed to wrestle free and ran screaming up the high street, but although her cries were heard in several houses, nobody came to her assistance. Recaptured by Bo's hoodlums, she was forced back into the carriage where Bose struck her on the chest with the heavy chain and seals of his watch. Charging on through the night, Bose stopped at Stamford, where Mary again screamed for help, and at Grantham, where Bose kept her locked in the coach while the horses were changed. Arriving in Newark at 7 a.m. on Saturday, Mary was allowed under tight escort to visit the garden privy, where she was recognized from past visits by an ostler who noted that she appeared to be in great agitation and distress of mind and seemed worn out and spent with fatigue, while a chambermaid remarked that Mary seemed not in her senses. Closely guarded as the carriage dashed on through Saturday, Mary was given no further chance to seek help until Bose stopped for fresh horses at Barnby Moor in Nottinghamshire. Complaining of sickness, probably exacerbated by the swaying motion of the speeding coach, she was allowed upstairs to a parlor. Hurriedly whispering her plight to a chambermaid while Bose was out of sight, Mary was finally rewarded. Shocked at details of the kidnap, the maid promised to send an urgent message to Lord Mansfield in London. On her knees, Mary kissed her in gratitude. Convinced by now that Bose planned to continue on to Scotland and from there set sail for Ireland, where her lawyers would have little hope of retrieving her, Mary was frantic. When they reached the familiar town of Barnard Casda, close to her ancient family seat of Streetlam Castle, she screamed as loudly as she could. My whole conduct from Highgate to Streetlam was alternately screaming out, where there were hopes of assistance, she later wrote, and remaining quiet where there were few. Three miles farther on, when the carriage rattled up the sweeping drive of Streetlim Castle and pulled up in front of the stone steps at about midnight, Mary shrieked to the postboys who had driven the horses from their last staging post that she had been brought there by force. Always ready with an answer, Bowes assured them that Mary was out of her mind. Bedraggled and exhausted, at the end of a journey lasting 34 hours, Mary certainly must have had the appearance of a madwoman. And as Bose dragged her into the castle, shutting the great wooden doors behind them, she had no idea whether she would ever emerge again. Met at the door by Henry Bourne, Bose's right-hand man, Mary was taken to the oak-paneled dining room where generations of her ancestors had lingered over lavish banquets and toasted family triumphs. Having demanded food after the arduous journey, Bose grabbed Mary and pointed his pistol at her breast, then threatened to fire unless she consented to live with him again as his wife. But where she was once cowed and submissive, terrified of her husband's violent assaults, now, Mary was defiant, refusing to comply with his demands, even at gunpoint. 
Flinging down his weapon in exasperation, Bose berated her until supper arrived, but no sooner had their plates been cleared than he snatched up his pistol again. Holding the gun once more to Mary's breast, Bose calmly informed her that he was determined to shoot. When he ordered her to say your prayers, Mary did just that. Closing her eyes, she declaimed, I recommend my spirit to God and my friends to his protection. Fire! Mary heard the trigger being pulled and waited for the fatal blow, but the gunpowder failed to ignite, probably owing to the damp conditions of the journey. Demented with rage, Bose punched Mary twice so that she fell to the floor, her head pounding so much that the room seemed in a blaze of fire. Towering over her, Bose demanded to know whether she had had enough, to which Mary reported, Not the thousand parts enough. You may shoot me or beat me to a mummy. My person is in your power, but my mind is beyond your reach. At that, Bose threw his ineffectual pistol aside and exclaimed in evident awe, By God, you are a wonderful woman. Undeterred nonetheless, Bose now ordered two of his ruffians to carry Mary up the grand oak staircase to bed. Once alone with her in the bedchamber, he told Mary to undress and get into bed with him. When she refused, he began to tear at her clothing, then forced her onto the bed. Well aware that if Mary consented to have intercourse, he could legitimately claim that she had returned to him as his wife and thereby invalidate her divorce suit, Bose demanded sex. Equally resolved to resist, Mary swore that she would rather die than consent. Although she was plainly no match for Bose's looming six-foot figure and renowned might, Mary threatened she would sue him for rape if he attempted to take her by force. No doubt aware that rape was a hanging offense, he relented and left her to sleep alone. Throughout the following day, Sunday, November 12th, Bose continued to threaten Mary with violence, harangue her with insults, and cajole her with details of a fresh round of eviction notices he planned to serve on her tenants. Closely guarded by Bose's confederates and served by Bose's mistress, a maid called Mary Galland, who is pregnant with yet another of his illegitimate children, Mary remained resolute. What followed during this whole ordeal was a countrywide search initiated by Mary Eleanor's friends and supporters back in London. The trials she endured over the next few days were worse than anything she had so far encountered with Stony Bows and would have lasting physical and psychological effects, but they also helped her to finally win her divorce case and lay foundations for future generations of women to escape domestic abuse. Mary Eleanor Bowes was unfortunately unable to fully realize her dreams of literary or scientific greatness, but she did leave a strong legacy for countless women after her. I highly encourage you to check out this book, Wedlock, by Wendy Moore. Um, it, it truly is fascinating. She has a real gift with words, and there are a lot of salient details that are not in this episode that I think are very interesting, including Mary Eleanor's attempts at um, bringing back plant specimens from far reaches of the world, um, 
really, really fascinating, and I highly encourage you to check out this book. If you like the podcast, please consider rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. If you don't like it, maybe tell an enemy or a frenemy that it's awesome and have a little private laugh at that. Thank you for listening.